Ephesians 6.17, and we're going to look at the helmet of salvation. I've uh, gotten back to uh, my book on Satan and Satanism, and, and uh, we're, we're going through the, uh, the armor of God from Ephesians. So uh, I, I have a few things left to tie up loose ends. And uh, as we continue to look at the whole armor of God with which to withstand the attacks of Satan and temptations, we come to the helmet of salvation, and uh, it, you're going to find this very interesting. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. The helmet is the fifth element of a Christian's armor described by Paul. Like the breastplate and the shield, it is defensive. I guess, you know, unless you bash somebody in the face with your head. But it's, it's, it's a defensive piece of armor. <clears throat> in the first century, the Greeks and the Romans wore helmets usually of thick leather, adorned with brass for extra protection. If you were higher up in the military, you might have one that's solid brass, but generally it would be leather with metal on it to protect. And obviously, you have to have leather, otherwise it would be uncomfortable. They could uh, withstand a blow from a Roman short sword. We find the use of helmet in Isaiah, where I. Uh, Yahweh put on the, this is uh, 59.17, put on the righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. Here both righteousness and salvation have to do with what God does for his people. Christ lived a life of perfect righteousness, fulfilling the moral law and the covenant of works in exhaustive detail. He also died as an expiatory sacrifice, eliminating the guilt and penalty of sin and all liability of punishment. <clears throat> Salvation is something Jesus accomplished. So he devoted himself to obeying the Father's will and saving the whole body of the elect, the sheep, his church. In Ephesians 6.17, the focus is on our knowledge and faith in the fact that we have been saved. So this knowledge of the fact that we have been saved is significant. And we need to keep this on our minds if we're going to fight against the wiles of the devil. The helmet of salvation, the object, is placed first in the sentence, making it emphatic. In 1 Thessalonians 5.8, the apostle tells Christians to put on the hope of salvation. We're going to look at that later. So my third major point. The point is that our hope in salvation is something that, we, that will be fully realized will help us endure the trials, temptations, and sufferings of the present life. So the Christian life is a life of hope. It's a life of faith, where you have to make sacrifices. You have to uh, endure knowing that the full realization of your salvation is yet future. The passage in Ephesians includes hope, but is broader. Our salvation in Christ is our helmet. How this helmet is used in our defense can only be ascertained by the significance of being in Christ and cleansed by his blood, noted in other passages of Scripture. And this topic is exceptionally rich. I think I have three major points. So let's look at the following elements first. <clears throat> and this is just obvious and jumps to mind immediately. Our knowledge of Christ's salvation and our union with him in his death and resurrection is a crucial aspect of our sanctification. When Paul answers the question, and this is from Romans, chapter 6, on if we're justified by faith, apart from the works of the law, 
why don't we just go on continuing sin? Hey, have fun. You're forgiven. You're, you got a ticket to heaven. Just go ahead out and get prostitutes and snort coke and do whatever you want. Why not? Well, he has the answer for that. He talks about our death with Jesus, our union with Jesus in his death and resurrection, Romans 6, 3-4. The fact that when the Savior died, we died to sin is a dominating, controlling force in our life. And the result, that when he arose, his saving efficacy means that we should walk in newness of life, is absolutely vital to defeating Satan's attacks. And that's from Romans 6, 4-5. Paul says, here's Romans 6, 6-7. Our old man, and that is what we were as unregenerate followers of the world, the flesh, and the devil, was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. For he who has died has been freed from sin. So Christ has freed us from the power of sin over us because he first delivered us from the guilt and penalty of sin. Our justification, that is God's declaration that we are righteous or just in the heavenly court, based not on our own righteousness, but the righteousness of Christ, must logically precede our sanctification, for justification is the reason that Jesus sends us the Holy Spirit. Now, the thinking of the natural man, of most people, you know, non-Christians, and of course the Jews in Paul's day, is that once we achieve a certain level of holiness or law-keeping, you know, by keeping God's moral commandments, he will accept us. That's, the, the, you know, that's Roman Catholicism, that's Islam, that's Judaism. That's the thinking. But the gospel teaches the opposite of this. It's rather amazing. That through Christ's redemption... His redemptive work, God justifies the ungodly, Romans 5, 6 to 8. Then those who are justified are made holy by the Holy Spirit, who applies the word of God to their hearts, convicting them of sin, teaching them the truth, 1 Corinthians 2, 15, 1 John 2, 20, and convincing them to die daily and crucify the sinful flesh, 1 Corinthians 13, 31 excuse me, 1531 and Matthew 1624, by putting off the old man and by putting on the new. Ephesians 4.22 and following. So Christianity is totally unique in all the world. Christ achieved a perfect salvation. He died in our place on the cross, eliminating the guilt and penalty of sin, all liability of punishment forever. And it is due to that, his death and resurrection, that he sends us the Holy Spirit, enabling us to be holy. Very different than what most people think. <clears throat> and of course, what I was taught as a, raised as a Roman Catholic. Because we are mystically united to Christ in his death, we will certainly partake of his life. That's Paul's argument. Our old life of sin is finished because we died to it. As justified believers, our new spiritual life of obedience has begun. Our death and resurrection with Christ, Paul says, makes it impossible and inconceivable that we should go back to our former pagan, unbelieving way of thinking and living. We partake of his salvific life, consequently our life must be lived in the Spirit, Galatians 5.16, in imitation of Jesus, the only man to perfectly obey God's law. Now, 
you'll see this passage, this thing, this expression, walk in the spirit. And, you know, it's Galatians. Walk in the spirit, you will not fulfill the desires of the flesh. Well, walking in the spirit is not some mystical thing where you're led by inner voices. Walking in the spirit means you submit to the spirit by obeying the word of God. That's what it means. You're walking according to the word of God and the Holy Spirit, the efficacy of Jesus' redemptive work through the Holy Spirit helps you obey the law. The knowledge of what we have received in Christ is our helmet to protect us from the darts of Satan and temptations. And we must focus on this reality as we seek to live consistently with who we really are. As Paul says, here's Romans 6, 11 to 13. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey it in its lusts. And do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness. We have been justified to obey the moral law of God. That's our standard of sanctification. Israel was delivered from Egypt, which is a typology of our salvation in Christ, being delivered from bondage. What did God do the first thing they did when they got out of Egypt? He gave them the law. The moral law, the Ten Commandments. They were say the law was given not so they could earn salvation. The law was given so they could be covenant keepers and show God their gratitude. What is in fact true salvifically must be true to our consciousness and daily convictions. As we go through life and experience trials and temptations, we must constantly be aware of our new position and status in Christ and strive to live consistently with that state of salvation. The old man has been crucified with Christ. The new person is justified and renewed. He is a new creation. A new creation. The old has passed away, and behold, all has become new. I believe that's from Corinthians. We now live in a loving fellowship with God, and this loving relationship must be manifested by devotion to serving Him and habitual obedience to His will. So, once again, we're not doing this to earn salvation. We're doing this because we are a new creation in Christ. It is our moral obligation. We must meditate on this reality, on the reality that our old life has ended. With the debt to the law paid, and the penalty or curse satisfied, we want nothing more to do with the old man and his rebellious, foolish, evil, vain way of living. Now, does that mean Christians are sinless? Absolutely not. I'm not saying that. But there's a definite demarcation between the old unconverted life and the new. The fact that Paul says that we are not to let sin reign in our mortal bodies indicates that although in sanctification sin is mortified, it is not completely destroyed in this present life. And if you think it is, and you try to be, and you're upset because you're not sinless, uh, you'll have a nervous breakdown, because you cannot achieve sinless perfection in this life. And I know that Wesley and the followers of Wesley teach sinless perfection, uh, but none of them, nobody's ever achieved it. And Wesley admitted he never achieved it. He certainly didn't achieve it in doctrine, for he taught a number of heresies. <clears throat> The dangers of temptation remain together with our mortal bodies <clears throat> that still struggle with sinful tendencies. 
the ability to be tempted and to be injured by yielding to the sinful lust means that we must not only focus on the helmet of salvation, but also strenuously strive against sin's efforts to gain ascendancy over us. We must not obey sin by yielding to carnal appetites. If you've got a problem with booze, you don't go to a bar. If you've got a problem uh, with the ladies, you don't go out to a club and go dancing with a bunch of hot-looking ladies. You avoid entering into temptation. <clears throat> we must not only... Uh, we must not obey sin by yielding to carnal appetites. While we are fully justified the moment we believed, okay, you're either saved or you're not saved. The moment you believe, you pass from death into life. You have eternal life the moment you believe. Sanctification is a process which, um, which is of different degrees among different Christians. We must not allow our bodies which were created to serve and glorify God to become instruments of sin or unrighteousness. We have been saved to serve God, not the flesh, the world, or the devil. Life is a series of choices. We must always put off that which displeases God or violates His holy law and replace that activity with lawful, productive Christian behaviors. Ephesians 4.22-32 We must walk in the Spirit so that we do not feel, fulfill the desires of the flesh, Galatians 5.16 And I, I have a a series of sermons, I believe, I think it's Galatians 4. Well, actually, I preached through the whole book of Galatians. Uh, no, Ephesians 4. I, I did a series on Ephesians 4. And um, the solution to a problem of sin and temptation is always to replace that which is unlawful and bad with something biblical. Like Corinthians, I think it's Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 6, is it? Where it says, look, if you're burned with passion... If you're having a problem with lust, you need to go out and get a wife. Take care of business. You know, you got to replace this with that. Replace that which is unlawful with that which is good and lawful. The helmet of salvation is a crucial aspect for holy, consistent Christian living. We must focus upon or know that our former self was crucified with Christ and that we have in him risen to a new life of love and service to God. We are dead to sin and alive to God. We are to recall, to ponder, to grasp, to register these truths until they are so integral to our mindset that a return to the old life is unthinkable. And I know a number of people that have apostatized. And they yield to sin, and then they go back to that old lifestyle. You know, hustling women, taking drugs getting drunk, you name it. They go back to that. I know seven different ministers, of course, this is over 40 years, who have committed adultery. Um, most of those men completely went apostate. I think like five out of the seven. They just went apostate. Regenerate Christians should no more contemplate a return to unregenerate living than adults to their childhood. Married people to their singleness or discard, uh, discharge prisoners to go back to the prison cell. Our union with Jesus Christ has severed us from the old life and committed us to the new. The passages that teach us to focus on the reality of what Christ's salvation does in us or its implications for how we must view ourselves tell us a few things by way of application. Number one, 
It teaches us that when we see our dedication and obedience weakened by fleshly desires or a love of things of this world, or simply personal negligence, lukewarmness, or carelessness, we must immediately endeavor the recovery of a serious, dedicated walk with Christ. Sad to say, our sanctification is very imperfect. Sad to say, Christians do sin. Christians do backslide. We have to be diligent, and if we fall, we have to get right back up and get back to serving Christ. In other words, we must quickly resolve to live consistently with who we really are. If there is a gaping hole in the roof of our house and rain, hail, and insects are coming in, we would not sit idly by and casually read a magazine. We would take immediate action. When our sanctification and walk in fellowship with God is in danger, we must look to who we really are in Christ and act appropriately. We must actively put off the thinking, desires, and behaviors of the old man and put on the new, Ephesians 4.22 and following. When we are tempted to sin, we must see that sin as a hideous doorway to our past unregenerate thinking. We must view sin as an act of treachery and hypocrisy to our new creation in Christ, 2 Corinthians 5.17. We must watch and pray that we do not enter into temptation, Matthew 26.41. The night is far spent and the day is at hand. Therefore, let us cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the day, not in revelry and drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, not in strife and envy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. Romans thirteen twelve to 14. You study the New Testament and you study the problems that Christians were having. Things have not changed in 2,000 years. Men still have a problem with lust. People still have a temp- temptation to get drunk or drink too much. Gossip's a serious problem in the church. There's all sorts of sins. And we don't make peace with those sins. We recognize who we are in Christ and we fight them with every fiber in our, of our being. As new creatures in Christ, let us starve the old man to death with his illicit lusts and sinful habits. Number two, it teaches us to endure trials, temptations, and calamities with faith, patience, endurance, or perseverance. If poverty, sickness, or calamities come, we must endure them as new creatures in Christ. We must imitate Jesus, who did not complain or blame God for difficulties, but patiently endured them. He walked on the waves without sinking. And we must endure with grace and faith, knowing that as new creatures, as serious Christians, we have been called upon to suffer. We are to walk the narrow road, that is the difficult path, Matthew 7.14, because that is our calling as Christians, as new men. And then our second major point, which another one, it's rather obvious, our covenant relationship to God. Second, our state of salvation places us within a covenant relationship with God 
that has special privileges and responsibilities. The responsibility to stand against the devil, the flesh, and the world is not something impersonal, but it's deeply personal. The Greeks have a very impersonal view of the law. These are principles that exist out there in the realm of ideals. That's, of course, better than modern secular humanists who believe there are no ethical absolutes at all, and man simply makes up his own ethics. So if you want to be a pretend you're a woman or pretend you're a man or you want to marry a man and be a sodomite and do all these disgusting, perverted things that God hates, why not? But that's not the way things really are. God has created, God is absolutely moral and he has created a moral law. He's given us a moral law. He didn't create it. It comes from his nature and character. It is a matter of faithfulness to the covenant. Our salvation brings us into a relationship to God that is compared to marriage. Isaiah 61, 10, 62, 5, Ephesians 5, 25 to 27 and 32, Revelation 21, 2, 9, and 22, 17. And sonship to a father. Romans 8, 15 to 23, 9, 4, Galatians 4, 5, and Ephesians 1, 5. Christ's salvation means that we are a special treasure to God, a kingdom of priests and a holy people. Exodus 19, 5 to 6, and of course Peter will quote that. But this relationship means we have a special added responsibility to demonstrate our love to God by keeping his moral law. Now, the fact that you're a creature, the fact that you're a creation of God, that you've been made by God, that this whole universe is made by God, means that we have a moral obligation to obey God. But Christians have an added responsibility as saved men to serve and love God as a wife does her husband or as a son does his father. Jesus said, if you, love my, if you love me, keep my commandments, John 14, 15. The intensely personal nature of the law within the covenant is brought out by Moses in his covenant renewal sermon in Deuteronomy 29, 12 to 13. That you may enter into covenant with the Lord your God and into his, this oath, which the Lord your God makes with you today, that he may establish you as a people for himself, and that he may be God to you, just as he has spoken to you, and just as he has sworn to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. What a great privilege to be in covenant with the creator of the universe, with God. Now there are covenantal curses for those who profess the true religion, yet follow the world and the devil. Deuteronomy 27, 16 to 26. Okay, we're in the South. This is the South. Where a lot of people go to church. And a lot of people are still committing adultery. And a lot of people are still fornicating. And a lot of people are still partying and getting drunk. And they're not following the law. They're not following the Lord. And it shouldn't be that way. And there are covenant blessings for those who habitually obey God's moral law. Deuteronomy 28, 1-14. Our salvation means that we are obligated to serve and obey the Lord with love, joy, and gladness of heart. The moral law is our standard for sanctification. It's not some personal, burdensome code bringing us into slavery, but as a law of love. You want liberty? You want political liberty? You want personal liberty? Obey the law of God. Yes, Christ brings us liberty from the curse of the law and death and punishment. But once you're saved, you're obligated to obey the law. 
and the the one thing great about the law is it's over the state. It's over the church. A lot of churches have corrupt elders who do all kinds of things that are not in the Bible. They act like Roman Catholics. It's above the elders. It's above the state. It gives you liberty. A father in a household, he's not allowed to do whatever he wants. He has to obey the word of God. It gives men liberty under God and under his law. This mindset is crucial in understanding temptations for our motivation is our covenant relationship to God who saved us from hell, death, the curse, and slavery to Satan. Hebrews 2.14 God requires the loyalty of love and the commitment of family. You're in a family. One's obedience or disobedience is a manifestation of faith or a lack of faith. Does one love human autonomy in the world or does one love Christ? Yahweh is father, Deuteronomy 32.6, and husband of the church, Isaiah 54.5, expects the fruits of faith and a visible man manifestation of covenant love. Jesus, who is our friend, Song of Solomon 5.16, kinsman, Job 19.25, father, Isaiah 9.6, brother, Hebrews 2.11, and bridegroom, Ephesians 5.25 and Revelation 21.9, expects us to show love and loyalty through habitual obedience to his commandments. He saved us from death. He saved us from hell. He saved us from the lake of fire. He saved us from our own foolishness and stupidity. The things that pagans do because they're blind are incredibly stupid and, and damaging. Look at all these rock stars and movie stars who basically drink themselves to death or take drugs to death, treat their wives like dirt, and ruin their families. He saved us from all that. He certainly has earned our loyalty. And we should, be we should have gratitude. The best proof of love for Christ, and that one possesses the helmet of salvation, is striving to obey the will of God revealed in Scripture. The helmet of salvation points us to practical, habitual obedience. An increase of true faith of who Jesus really is and what he has done on our behalf will lead to an increase of love, which in turn leads to an increase in obedience or covenant faithfulness. So if you're struggling with sin, if you've got problems, this is what you need to be thinking about and focusing upon. Today, there's a lot of talk about love of Christ with much singing, celebrating this love. Yet the Old Testament moral commandments are often maligned as belonging to a former dispensation. They're not for us Christians. We're led by the Spirit. We're led by mystical leadings. We're led by natural law, whatever that is. But that Old Testament law, that moral law in the Old Testament, the Ten Commandments and the moral case laws, oh, that's not for us. To teach the Ten Commandments or any Old Testament moral case laws is said to be, it's legalistic, it's dangerous. And I've been following some of the things going on. Uh, there's a whole group of people in the Lutheran Missouri Synod. There's a whole group of people in the Christian Reformed Church who are actively trying to legalize and legitimize homosexual marriage. That is dangerous. That is deadly. And what they do is people who say, we need to obey the scriptures, well, you're being legalistic. No, 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 no. Legalism is when men make up their own law. Legalism is when men try to earn their own salvation apart from Christ. Legalism is never simply obeying Scripture. 
We are told the law, even as simply as a standard of proper ethical behavior or sanctification, is an enemy of grace. I was taught that as a charismatic. This radical unscriptural mindset is often accompanied by worldliness and ethical compromises on the part of many professing Christians. Among modern evangelicals, unlawful divorces and fornication levels are only slightly better than the surrounding pagan population. This is, there was a very detailed, comprehensive poll by Gallup. I know the poll is kind of old, but it's still shocking. There's very little difference in the behavior between evangelicals and the surrounding pagan culture. They're a little bit better, but they're still terrible. And that's what happened when, when you think the law is bad, the moral law is bad, the Old Testament law is bad, and you're not allowed to teach it. But Christ not only exhibits his authority as the divine lawgiver by calling the moral law his commandments, but appeals directly to covenant language, covenantal language of the love connected to covenant faithfulness. All the stuff about if you love me, keep my commandments, all that stuff comes directly out of the Old Testament. You know, a new commandment I give you that you love each other, that comes right out of the law. What he commanded of his covenant people in his pre-incarnate state on Mount Sinai is commanded of his New Testament disciples as well. And John Brown, his comments on this covenant love are noteworthy. They're excellent. <clears throat> Quote, Obedience to the commandments of Christ is a test of love to him. And there will be no difficulty in applying the test if there be only an honest desire to have the question fairly settled. For there are certain qualities of obedience which are to be found in every every lover every lover of Christ and which are never found in anyone else and it is to these we must attend if we would know what is our character every lover of Christ keeps his commandments implicitly that is he does what he does because Christ bids him the doing of what Christ commands may be agreeable to my inclinations or co conductive to my interest and if it is on these grounds I do it, I serve myself, not the Lord Jesus Christ. What Christ commands may be compared by those whose authority I acknowledge and whose favor I wish to secure. If I do it on these grounds, I keep man's commandments, not Christ's. I keep Christ's commandments only when I do what he bids me because he bids me. If I love Christ, I shall keep his commandments impartially. If I do anything because Christ commands me to do it, I shall do whatever he commands. I shall not pick and choose. If I love Christ, I shall keep his commandments cheerfully. I shall esteem it a privilege to obey his law. The thought that they are commandments of him whom I love because of his excellency and kindness makes me love his law. For it must be excellent because it is his. And it must be fitted to promote my happiness for the same reason. If I love Christ, I shall keep his commandments, perseveringly. If I really love him, I can never cease to love him. And if I never cease to love him, I shall never cease to obey him. End of quote. That's wonderful. That's his commentary on the, uh, the Gospels. <clears throat> now, given this fact of how our salvation establishes this wonderful relationship, when we are tempted, we must consider our love of the bridegroom. Are we going to honor this covenant with 
faithfulness. Are we going to stay on the narrow path of covenant blessings? If we do fall into sin, and we all do, are we going to repent immediately and ask for forgiveness? The love of Christ must direct our thinking, our speech, and our actions. The difference between an apostate and a Christian, the Christian repents, and he never gives up. The apostate doesn't repent, and he continues in the downward spiral to the abyss. Third, this is our third major point. We have three major points. Our state of salvation is a helmet, for it gives us hope. 1 Thessalonians 5.8 Let us put on as a helmet the hope of salvation. Our salvation in Christ is a present possession with amazing future consequences. The salvation we possess now is not complete in the sense that we await the resurrection and the glorification of our bodies. For example, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. This will only occur at the second coming of Christ. In addition, our current fallen state, even though we are regenerated and the power of sin over us has been defeated, we are not uh, without sin and temptations. We will not be without sin and temptations until we die and our souls go to heaven to be with the glorified Savior. You have to fight against sin, and you'll, have, you'll struggle until the day you die. Salvation has a now element and a not yet aspect. The fact that we possess salvation right now is the guarantee that our complete salvation will, when the time comes, be fully realized. <clears throat> our faith in Christ includes a faith in His perfect, comprehensive, complete salvation. And this gives us the hope we need to obey the Word of God and withstand the darts and blows of the devil. Speaking before Felix, Paul said, I have hope in God which they themselves also accept, that there will be a resurrection of the dead, both of the just and the unjust, Acts 24.15. The apostles' hope in the future resurrection of the body and glorification is described as hope in Yahweh, hope in God, because it is the power of God that fulfills the promises and thus raises the dead. Yes, we're always looking at that cross, that bloody cross. Yes, we're always looking at that empty tomb. And yes, we also have to keep our eyes on the prize. We have to keep our eyes on that day of resurrection, that day of judgment. As we fight against the world, the flesh, and the devil, and the present, and make many sacrifices in the here and now, the knowledge that in the future Jesus will come back for us, and a redemption will be complete, gives us incredible strength to withstand and endure trials and tribulations. Therefore, we do not live to serve self and sinful lusts. Consequently, we die daily, crucify the flesh, and deny ourselves. Romans 8, 1 and 18, 12, 1 to 2. And I like what Paul says in Corinthians. He's all, look, if we don't rise from the dead, we're of the most people, we're, we're really stupid, miserable people. Because we're making all these sacrifices. We're not indulging the flesh. We're doing all these sacrifices for this future hope. And if it's not true, 
then we're wasting our time, essentially. John 12, 25, and this is repeated, Mark 8, 25, and Luke 9, 20, 24. He who loves his life will lose it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Here's another version of it in Matthew 10, 39. He who finds his life will lose it, and he who loses his life for my sake will find it. And the meaning of these passages is clear. He who has more regard for the present life then making the necessary sacrifices to follow and serve Christ will not obtain eternal life. One who cares for the present life and its pleasures more than salvation in Christ and eternal life may enjoy life now, but he does so at the expense of glorified everlasting life. And beloved, life goes by really quick. I remember when my mom we went to the parking lot, we got out of the car, and she walked me to kindergarten class. I remember that like it was yesterday. And that was in 1962. Jesus is telling Christians in every age that they need to count the costs of following him. If they are not willing to die to sin self in the present world, they cannot regard themselves as true disciples. And of course, the word hate is used Hebraistically and must be taken comparatively. Yeah, I love sunsets. I love going to the beach with my wife. I love taking a walk in the mountains. I love going to a lake. But we're not here to serve self and follow our lusts and focus on entertainment all the time. We're here to serve Christ. As faithful covenant keepers. We have set aside worldly desires, aspirations and goals, as well as sinful pleasures, because we look to the future when our sacrifices and obedience will be rewarded. We have faith in what we cannot see or perceive with the senses, because our faith is directed to Jesus Christ and His infallible Word. Biblical hope is so strongly connected to faith that the author of Hebrews says, Now faith, this is 11.1, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Our realized salvation is the ultimate object of our expectations, and this hope dominates our thinking and our behavior. Before I was a Christian, I regularly scuba dived, I snow skied, I was in a super popular band, I played on television, I had tons of friends, I had a black book with all these girls' names in it, I was a popular guy, and I threw it all in the trash. Because it's nothing compared to being a Christian and, and having a relationship with God through Christ. There is no comparison. And your life goes by in a moment. But you're dead for billions and billions and billions of years. So it's really not a good bargain to, re to reject Christ for this world. It's not a wise decision. It's absolutely stupid and satanic. The people of this world hope in worldly things, notoriety, riches, personal power, the fulfillment of sexual lust, the accumulation of material things and status. They are worldly-minded, and they swim downstream in a river of sin. Heavenly things and the things of the Spirit mean nothing to them. Consequently, when Satan calls, they listen. There is no helmet defending their mind from false worldviews, demonic religions, or idolatry. They follow the world spirit philosophically, religiously, and ethically over the cliff into the abyss, 
Aren't you amazed? I mean, it's amazing when the intellectual elite and the homosexual lobby starts teaching things that are absolutely insanity, and our culture goes right along with it. First, this idea that homosexuality is normal. It's gross. It's not normal. It's not, even, it's not natural. It's obviously gross and disgusting and perverted. Then we're told that men can be women and women can be men. That is insanity. That is satanic delusion. You have to have the helmet of salvation on and protect yourselves from the world spirit. It's amazing. And then, and then now conservatives, like you know Fox News, which is supposedly conservative, they fully accept homosexuality and homosexual marriage and all these things. And then, and then now conservatives will say, well, let's keep it away from the children. Well, if it's immoral, it should be kept away from everybody, shouldn't it? If it's wrong. You know, you have to have an uncompromising position, and that is the biblical world and life view as it's taught in Scripture. Temptations are welcomed. And rebellion with treason against the true and living God is their walk. The Christian possesses hope as a supernatural grace and clings to all the precious promises associated with the gospel. Faith lays hold of the promises in scripture and hope sustains the soul to endure the trials of life and wait patiently for the fulfillment of these promises. You have to have hope. David says, Psalm 119.81, My soul faints for your salvation, but I hope in your word. Sammy Rutherford says this, Believe, believe under a cloud and wait for him when there is no moonlight or starlight. Let faith live and breathe and lay hold of the salvation of God when clouds and darkness are about you and appearance of rotting in the prison. And when we are pleased to seek a plea with Christ, let us plead that we hope in him. O stout word of faith, though he slay me, yet I will trust in him. O sweet epitaph written upon the gravestone of the departed believers, namely, I died hoping and my dust and ashes believe in life. End of quote. It is good in all these times of persecution and affliction to have an eye both on the promises and on the precepts. This is David Dixon. For the looking to the promise doth encourage to hope, and the eyeing of the precepts doth prove the hope to be sound. The psalmist hoped in the word, verse 81 and verse 83, he forgot not the statutes. So our hope looks to the promises. Our hope looks to the blessings of the promises. What is promised? It brings our minds and thoughts into heaven as if we were already there. Faith in the present says <coughs> we are more than conquerors. Romans 8, 37. Hope says, I will persevere, overcome, grow in grace, and obtain the victory. For God is faithful and he fulfills his word. Hope patiently waits for everything that Jesus accomplished in his life, death, and resurrection to be brought to completion in us. Therefore, Christ is our hope, 1 Timothy 1.1. 1, 1. What he accomplished on the cross and by the empty tomb for us is guaranteed and sealed in us by the Spirit under the day of redemption. Ephesians 1.13, 4.30, and 2 Corinthians one twenty two. Now, there are many ways in which hope in Christ and his promises helps us in our warfare. Number one, 
hope spurs Christians on to good works for the kingdom of God. As the hope of unbelievers causes them to work hard for riches, for fame, possessions, pleasures, the hopes of Christian causes them to attend the means of grace, to study the word of God, to walk according to the moral law. Those who are zealous in the cause of God and truth do so out of hope for the eternal reward. Believers regard the things of this life, popularity, riches, fame, earthly power, as vanity and foolishness, for they hope for the city above and the new heavens and the new earth. What are the trinkets of this world which are passing away, 1 John 2.17, compared to beholding the face of God, fellowshipping in the presence of Christ, and experiencing the glories of heaven? There is absolutely no comparison. The most pleasurable thing you can think of on earth is just but a speck of dust compared to just beholding the face of God, the, the amazing satisfaction and joy that will bring. Number two, biblical hope gives believers a single eye on Christ and a heart totally dedicated to waging war against the sinful flesh and those past sinful habits that want to hold us in bondage. Those Israelites who did not have faith and hope not only refused to fight in the promised land, but continuously longed to go back to their pleasures and idolatry in Egypt. Why do you think God didn't let them get in the promised land? They all died. Their bodies rotted. In, their bones are in Egypt. I mean, in the, in the wilderness. Multitudes of those who once professed Christ gave up, and they went back into the world because this faith and hope were dead. Hope in Christ and the promises never makes peace with sin or signs a treaty with the devil. Hope marches on through the storms of life. And when the true Christian fails and falls, he gets right back up and continues forward. He keeps his eye on his faith on Christ and cleans off his armor and he continues the fight. 1 John 3, 3. When he is revealed, we shall be like him for we shall see him as he is. Everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. Number three. Hope enables Christians to have a proper perspective on the present world, exposing the vanities of unlawful pleasures, vain glory, and the idolatry of materialism. There is a consciousness of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, Colossians 1.5. Paul says, Philippians 3.20-21, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body, that it may be conformed to his glorious body, according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. Hebrews 10.34 You had compassion on me in my chains, and joyfully accepted the plundering of your goods, knowing that you have a better and enduring possession for yourselves in heaven. Faith looks away from the present order to that which cannot be seen, reckoning, Romans 8.18, Romans 8, that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. And here's 2 Corinthians 4.17-18. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Tell me, who was the most popular singer in 1883? Nobody knows. 
Do you think people are going to care 500 years from now about Kim Kardashian? Or these rap stars and all this stupid stuff? They'll be dust. They'll be burning in hell. But Christians will be in glory. Our hope helps us to endure persecutions and hardships. It enables us to avoid the American path of rank materialism and hedonism. We understand that it is vanity to lay up treasures on earth without faith and a commitment to Christ, that we should lay up treasures in heaven, Matthew 6.20, where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For the Christian, one's life and priorities should testify where our true loyalty and treasure is. Think of Abraham who left his family behind to live in a strange land, surrounded by enemies, living in tents. He focused his faith and hope on the promise, Hebrews 11.10, for he waited for the city which has foundation, has foundations whose builder and maker is God. Abraham, Abraham didn't see that city. He didn't get see any of the promises fulfilled to him personally, in his own life. They, they were fulfilled after he died, but he got to go straight to heaven. We need a strong, consistent, enduring hope of salvation if we are to avoid this world's pagan or atheistic concepts. People must have some kind of hope if they are to move uh, forward in life. If one's hope is not directed to Christ and his perfect salvation, it will be directed either to some pagan or atheistic fantasy or something here on earth. Pleasure, fame, riches, power. The unregenerate heart, which are spiritually blind and dead, John 3, 3, Ephesians 2, 1, and 5 and 6, and 1 Corinthians 2, 14, is perfectly suited to worldly vain hopes. The one whose hopes and dreams are totally set on this world will cling tightly to worldly things as idols. But lasting happiness and true peace cannot come with such vanities that vanish away like dust in the wind. What do you think all these like rock musicians and all these movie stars, and they, when they attain the pinnacle... So many of them self-destruct and get go into complete drugs and drunkenness and, and craziness. Because it's vanity. It has no substance. We find an example of such foolishness and false hope in Felix, Acts 24-26, who listened to Paul's exposition of the gospel for a great length of time and even trembled in fear when he heard about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Acts 24-25. Why did he listen to Paul for so long? It was not a spiritual interest or longing, but because he was hoping that Paul would give him a bribe. He was waiting for Paul to give him some silver or gold in order to be released, Acts 24, 26. That's a man of the world. That's a man of the world. Number four. Hope gives us endurance or perseverance to suffer for Christ and his cause as well as continue seeking further spiritual attainments. Paul says, for we know that the whole creation groans and labors with both birth pangs until now. Not only that, but we also have the first fruits of the Spirit. Even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly awaiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. For we are saved in this hope. But hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one still hope for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance Romans 8 22 to 25 perseverance is connected to hope a soldier who knows that his army 
will most certainly win the war, goes into battle with confidence. He's not going to give up. He's got confidence. He knows the battle's already been won by, the war's been won by Christ. He strives to do great things for that assured victory. And we have the promise of Jesus that as we seek the spiritual conquest of planet Earth with the gospel and the whole counsel of God, he will be with us to sustain us. Matthew 28, 19 to 20. Go, therefore, make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And you know where that comes from, don't you? That comes from Joshua, as they're about to, which is the Hebrew name for Jesus, as they're about to march into the promised land. Hope calms the heart and silences complaints or murmuring during times of affliction. As David says, Psalm 43, 5, Why are you cast down on my soul? And why are you dis disquieted within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise him, the help of my countenance and my God. Here's Psalm 42, 1. As a deer pants for the water brook, so pants my soul for you, O God. Now with the sponges of the cannon, when hot, with often shooting, that is hope to the soul in multiplied afflictions. It cools the spirit and meekens it that it doth not fly in pieces and break out into distempered thoughts or words against God. That's from William Gurnell. Meditate on these words from Paul, Romans 8, 35 to 39. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things to come nor height nor depth nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So what have we seen? Let's wrap it up. Although the helmet of salvation is a defensive piece of our armor, it is clearly a crucial piece. Obviously, what's, you know, you have to protect your head. You can't survive without a head. A Christian cannot survive in this spiritual war without it. Let us focus on our union with Christ and our striving for holiness. We must focus on our covenant relationship with God. as we seek to remain covenantally faithful. In addition, we must hope in God as we contemplate all the glorious promises associated with our precious salvation in Christ. The war has already been won, beloved. We have no reason to fear. Will you be tempted? Yes. But you have to keep all this on your mind, and you'll never give up. You'll never give up. If you fall, you'll get right back up and get back in the fight. Let us pray. Father, we thank you. Thank you for the helmet of salvation that Christ has given us through his redemptive work. Thank you, that Lord, for this and cause us to be consistent for we fail in many areas. Help us, Lord, to be obedient, to be covenant keepers. Focus our minds on our love for Christ. Cause us that love to grow. Cause our dedication to grow. Cause us to be more and more faithful. Sanctify us through thy word. Thy word is truth. Help us, Lord, to be obedient. In Jesus' name, amen.